Dear friends, if you're watching this video message, it means that I'm in a basement in New York City. I am unable to attend the colloquium because I promised weeks ago to present my poetry at Baby Castles there, and I'm very sorry I can't be with you all. I'm Nick Monfort, I'm on the faculty here at CMSW, and I'm also editor with the Embogist of the series Platform Studies from MIT Press. And tonight you're going to hear from Julian Mellard and Kevin Driscoll, who have made an excellent contribution by writing the book Minitel, Welcome <coughs> to the Internet. Um, a wonderful part of the series that is great for a lot of topical and content reasons related to the way that decentralization and centralization play out in particular national contexts, the specificities of hardware and software, how they relate to computing platforms and communication platforms and how there were popular antecedents to the internet in addition to the research networks that we know about, Minitel in France and then BBSs in the United States. So uh, we're going to uh, hear a great talk. Uh, you're in for a great uh, evening with, uh, with Kevin and Julian. Um, and I want to say a few things about uh, these two. So Kevin, uh, as many of you know, was uh, a student here. He's an alumnus of uh, the Comparative Media Studies graduate program. And in fact, he was uh, also uh, known uh, when he was here as uh, DJ Lone Wolf. <laughs> one of the things that I want to uh, point out is that his collaboration with Julian is a great example of how uh, the typical idea of a scholarly lone wolf can evolve into a collaboration and uh, how people can bring their strings together to crack difficult problems that uh, even the best uh, individuated scholarly practice would have a difficult time with. So I hope that uh, when you have a chance to talk with Kevin and Julian and when you have a chance to ask questions afterwards, that you'll not only ask about the really fascinating uh, topic-based work they did related to Minitel, but you'll also ask them about how their collaboration proceeded. So this is the book, and I'll um, introduce uh, the two presenters. Julian Milan is uh, faculty in the Media School, Indiana University, Bloomington, Kevin Driscoll, um, he's also on faculty at the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. And the institution that they share is Minitel Research Laboratory USA, which has a physical collection. You'll see some evidence of that, I'm sure, in the images they showed you tonight. And it's also online at minitel.us. So although I can't uh, be here um, in real reality with you, uh, please join me in welcoming Julian and Kevin and have a great uh, evening and a great discussion with them. All right. Well, thanks, uh, everyone, for being here. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about platforms in the public interest, uh, lessons from Minitel. We're writing, we call the book uh, Minitel, Welcome to the Internet, uh, to highlight the fact that we're looking at the past uh, as a case study to think about the future of cyberspace. So tonight we're going to talk about the past and about the future, and hopefully during the Q&A you guys can help us think through some of the current issues that um, we're facing. So imagine it's 1983, you're in France, and you get a letter from the post office, which also happens to run the phone company. It's the state, as in most countries. Uh, in the world, the phone company was run by the Ministry of the Post, Telegraph and Telephone. And the phone company tells you, come over and we'll give you a box with a free computer in it. So people started lining up in post offices and they had overflow distribution centers in gyms like this one. And they would give you a box for free. And in the box would be this 
um, little brown plastic box here, yeah. which uh, opens to reveal a keyboard and a little screen. And that's a Minitel. Uh, what did people do with Minitel? Well, first of all, it's really important to note that it was the first time in the world that you really had a mass market for online life. At the time, 1983 in the US, very few people were online. Uh, all of France quickly got online. And what did you do with it? Well, it prefigured most services that Americans discovered during the dot-com, right? So before there was the dot-com, uh, there was Minitel. Before there was SG, even Siri, they were Claire and Sophie. Uh, to them, you could ask natural uh, language questions. Um, before there was Webvan, there was telemarket. Uh, and it catered to kind of the same uh, crowd that the food delivery services uh, do now in the US, you know, um, young, wealthy ur urbanites usually. Um, before there was Ticketmaster, there was Bietel. Uh, before there was E-Trade, in the US, only the one personer uh, could really trade um, live, like these guys in uh, trading places, they're trading from their car. When well, France, you could actually trade online in the 80s. This is a service from BNP, which is the largest um, French bank. Before there was words with France, there was 3615 Scrabble. Uh, before there was Doom, there was interactive gaming on Minitel. Uh, before there was SETI at home and you could send messages to uh, outer space, there was the Cosmos Art Initiative. Before you could check your grades on the web, uh, you could do it on Minitel. This is actually the Minitel site for the University of Paris too, which is my undergraduate home. Uh, before you would go on Yahoo to ask people about their age, their sex, and their locations, you could do that uh, on Minitel. And in fact, these were widely advertised in the streets of France. So it was a chat of a special certain nature. Uh, it looked like this on the screen. And, and that is probably the most famous part of the whole thing. It's called Minitel Rose. Uh, it means pink Minitel, right? And so for years and years and years, uh, the streets of France in towns and on the countryside were covered with these ads for Desiropolis or the heavenly chat rooms. Uh, and so you ended up spending a lot more time looking at it offline than you did online because it was so expensive, right? Uh, there was a range of ads for it. I mean, you need to understand, the streets of France were covered with those things. Uh, some of these ads were playful, uh, like, like this one. Uh, they catered to a range of, of practices. Uh, this one is called um, Canal Dudes. Uh, in between us dudes, and there's a bunch of little bananas there. Um, it's also important to know that uh, on the more serious note, uh, Minitel actually served as a very important uh, information tool for the gay community at the time that the uh, HIV epidemic was, was starting. Um, some of the ads were subtle. This one says, he and she are on SM. Um, on that note, uh, we've conducted a bunch of oral histories with the Computer History Museum. So if you want to read to hear about the SM service chat room, there's 226 minutes of it right there on the Computer History Museum website. Um, some of it did punts. And uh, so Le Monde is really the newspaper of record. It's kind of the French New York Times. And they said, you know, we're mostly IQ. Um, but of course, in a little Minitel, 
Um, and it's also uh, worth noting that Q in, in French pronounces Q, which means bug. Uh, so there's a little bit of a pun there. So anyways, <laughs> why is this important? Why, why should we care? Uh, Minitel got turned off in 2012 by the state. It's no longer, at least in its formal um, form. We'll talk about this later. But it's important because everyone in France was online uh, in the mid-80s. This is the number of terminals installed. Um, and despite the fact that it prefigured most of the issues that we face today uh, online, be privacy, cyberbullying, uh, illegal content, etc. Um, Minitel really is kind of derided in Silicon Valley as an example of what not to do, a joke, as Fred Turner has pointed out. Uh, economist Ellie Noam at Colonia calls it a backward system uh, that died because it was statist. Uh, so was it really a closed, centralized, state-centered, backward system, as it is derided in Silicon Valley? Well, we made the argument that it was, in fact, a public platform for private innovation. It wasn't a closed system, but it wasn't an end-to-end -end system either. It was, in fact, a hybrid ecosystem uh, that was, at the same time, centralized and decentralized open and closed, public and private. And so it forces us, that case study forces us to think beyond binaries, right? It's a useful case for finding the right balance of uh, public and private as we define public policies that will foster innovations but in a way that is respectful of uh, human beings. And one of the conclusions that we, we found through these case studies is that more state intervention does not mean more control over innovation, necessarily. And less state doesn't mean that your ability to create and distribute content will not be controlled. Uh, in fact, the recent debate on net neutrality shows us that when you leave it to the private sector to run the internet with no strings attached, it leads to problems. So, um, internet policy really is a matter of balance and nuance, not of Minitel is bad, the private sector is great, as we hear a lot. And so, again, why is this important? This book and this project is not about saving Minitel's face in Silicon Valley. It's about realizing that we have a wealth of data about policy, about the effects of policy, um, and it's very useful data when we want to devise good policy for the future of cyberspace, including uh, for platform governance and uh, what policy should govern them. So, Kevin, when we talk about platform governance, what do we mean when we say platforms? Well, so this project, and as a little bit of background, grew out of a enthusiast interest of a kind between Julian and I. And when we started to turn that into scholarly inquiry, we had a range of choices of how are we going to make sense of this system? How are we going to enter into this phenomenon? And we allowed ourselves a little bit of a tactical anachronism by projecting the current word platform into the past. So it's important to frame this by saying we don't have evidence of people in the 1980s describing Minitel using the word platform. But 
by using the term platform, it enables us to see continuities across these systems and systems that we might inhabit today. So when we think about platform, we're thinking on the edge of new research in the space around internet and social media. And one thing that you can see when you start looking at new data coming out about how everyday people think about the online systems they use is that they don't primarily think about the internet as the operative object of use. Rather, you might be using this particular app or accessing this service. The internet gradually fades into the background. So a simple test for thinking about that is, do you think of yourself as a toilet user or an uh, air conditioning user? These are technologies that are vital to our everyday lives, but they have receded to the point that they fall out of our identity. And the internet is kind of experiencing a similar disappearing act, that it falls out of the ways that we narrate our use of media as we move through space, that we may think of social media systems apart from the infrastructures that make them possible. And uh, Anna Hellman describes this very succinctly as platformatization, this enclosure of this large uh, global information infrastructure into some kind of archipelago of different <coughs> privately run platforms. And in her research around what this means, this process and this change, she's especially interested, as are we, in the consequences of this change. This technical change is happening all around us. What we want to attend to is what effects that have on the lives of the people that are actually inhabiting these systems. So we know from an economic vantage point that platforms matter. Building a business around a platform seems to have some obvious benefits. All of the companies that enjoy these very large market capitalizations are in the business of building platforms, multi-sided <coughs> platforms. But we also kind of know from a media history point of view that this sort of economics isn't new. And the platform as a way of building a business, bringing customers together with content providers, crosses lots of different areas of media studies, media history. So we can see it in payments, we see it in games, we see it in uh, personal computer operating systems. But today's platforms are kind of different. And putting, being able to put your finger on how they're different is really important before we go into this historical work. So we can borrow from uh, Charlton Gillespie's analysis of the kind of shady tactical use of the term platform by various social media and, and online service providers to move between these different registers that the term platform can take on different meanings and express different values according to uh, what audiences and which speakers are connecting around that term. So in the case of Minitel, we actually have this very rich, robust, holistically defined historical phenomenon that has a beginning and an end that meets all four of these definitions. It's a platform from the past that looks a lot like the platforms that we are analyzing in the present. So we know platforms as technologies. A simple way to think about it is, can you program this thing? Can you write code to it? So we can write code that runs on top of Android. Android is a kind of a platform. We also know a little bit about economic platforms. We sometimes describe these as two-sided or multi-sided markets that bring together different stakeholders 
the platform owner extracts a rent from the interactions between them. But the last two ways of thinking about platforms are perhaps most salient for a lot of people in this room, and Minitel is unique in its capacity to illuminate some variation within these categories. So platforms are places where politics happen, but politics that happen in platforms maybe happen a little bit differently than politics of other media systems. And we imbue platforms with the values of important milestones in our lives. So people kind of signal their beginning and ending of personal relationships, adopt, taking on jobs and things like that through their interaction with different kinds of platforms. So these platforms, in a way, we could flip our definition of Minitel and think of the platforms that we generally, that come first to mind as private infrastructures for public life. So we kind of building up a contrast that hopefully by analyzing that meeting point, we'll get some sense of what the consequences might be for moving things around. The three operating terms that are useful to think with are sovereignty, accountability, and transparency. And these terms we choose because they do reflect terms that we would use to describe governments also, that this is about governing interactions of people and technologies. And the main thing, the, like, the, the source, the useful points of entry, tend to be public conflicts, conflicts that unfold between people and platform providers. When conflicts happen, we're often searching for alternative models. And that's just a way to explain how things could have played out differently. And today, a lot of times, you see people trying to invent these alternative models from whole cloth. Just imagine Facebook differently, or what if Amazon worked like this? So when we say that Minitel provides us data, it provides us a worked, lived example of a platform that operated under very different social, political, and economic conditions than the ones that we generally think about. What it does for us, and what we found through our work, is that it pushed us away from thinking about platforms in terms of having binary characteristics, meaning they are centralized or decentralized, public or private. Instead, in almost every place that we looked in this Minitel story, we saw hybridity and we saw continuity. And so this gives us some terms, some dimensions on which we could put platforms in conversation with each other, seeing how they move between the different poles of these uh, characteristics that we see, public, private, open, closed, centralized, and decentralized. Now, Julian, here's the big question. This is a, obviously a cool project. But why did Minitel get made? Why would the state invest so much in this project? Well, that's an excellent question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, well, there's circumstantial things, and there's more grand uh, picture things. Circumstantially, uh, the French phone network in 1979 was a disaster. To get a phone line from AT&T in the US, there was a three-day waiting period. In France, there was a three-year waiting period. Okay, uh, my parents got theirs at home because my dad's a doctor and he said, oh, he needed like emergency line. So they got it super fast, six months. Okay, so that was a problem. So the phone system had to be rebuilt, but of course that's not free. Um, most importantly, I think there was an ideological thing here is that um, this is a time where the French and American kind of love-hate relationship is in full bloom. Uh, the Gaulle had just kicked out US troops um, from the country, and as uh, Giscard d'Estaing, who was the president who kind of oversaw this whole thing, said, 
Uh, for France, the American domination of telecommunications and computer is a threat to the independence and technology and culture. Technology and culture, right? This is a time where the Communist Party asks, will we be Coca-Colonized? <laughs> okay. Sorry, so, what year is that from? What's that? What year is that? From? This is from 54. Um, now, that fear of American cultural domination uh, has parallels today, and it's called omni-Googleization. That's a term that was coined by the head of the uh, French National Library. He says, omni-Googleization is the risk of a crushing domination by America on future generations' understanding of the world, aka Google is scanning books, but only books in English and not in French, right? So there's this big fear, and at the time, in the late 70s, uh, the enemy is called IBM, okay? And so the president tasked these two researchers, Nora and Mick, uh, to come up with a solution. And they come, with, come up with this book called The Computer, Computerization <laughs> of Society, which is a bestseller uh, around the world. And they said, well, what's going to save us? Not only fix the phone network, but also jumpstart a French uh, industry and content software machines that are going to help us fight IBM. It's this thing called telematics. And telematics is the juncture of telephone and informatics, uh, aka data processing, really. And so Minitel emerges out of this grand plan, which includes other projects like launching satellites, uh, widespread introduction of fax machines, uh, phone cards, and banking cards with smart chips, which were also invented uh, in France. And so Minitel here is very clearly, you can see the, the you know, wedding of the phone and computers, right? And so Minitel is seen as a public platform for private innovation. It's going to be a platform that's going to jumpstart the um, development of a French domestic industry in content, in software, and in hardware, which will be exported. That part of the plan didn't work out. Uh, there's a saying that a, a French civil servant said, I heard that everyone in the world envies us, Minitel. Well, I don't know if they envy us, but they certainly are not buying it. Uh, so it was not exported, but it really worked well in France. So how did it get started? In 1980, uh, a bunch of experiments take place uh, to figure out you know, what the best way to set up the system is, but that doesn't make people adopt uh, the system. Now, as a platform, Minitel is a multi-sided market. Okay, there's different market participants. You get user, you get content creators, you get software providers, you get hardware manufacturers, right? And one is not gonna come if the others aren't gonna come either, and so it's a chicken and egg problem. Usually in the information industry, the way to solve this is to prime the pump. And the pump, the French government really, really did. It ordered millions of terminals from Alcatel uh, to jumpstart the hardware industry. And then it gave those terminals for free to users. Not only were they free, but you were required to take them because they threatened that the phone book would be discontinued and that you'd have to use this. And there were a whole lot of things that you had to do online, uh, like I did growing up, registering for uh, the draft and registering for the university in particular were two things. Um, the government set up a system that had very low barriers to entry uh, for users free terminals, very easy 
to do plug and play. This was the manual. The manual was one page. All you do is you plug a Minitel on the electricity and you plug it on the phone system and you're up and going. And then I provided some free content, uh, which was the phone book. And the phone book was great. It was really advanced. Uh, it had uh, search semantic search capability, so you could search with partial names, partial addresses. And so people started um, what we call Googling oneself, you know, or Googling your friends, except it was Minitelling yourself. And then the government also set up very low barriers to entry for content provider. It set up a payment system called Kiosk, where it acted, the phone company acted like a middleman, just like the kiosk dog when you buy a newspaper. You pay the kiosk, you get a newspaper, the kiosk then rebates most of that money to the newspaper provider. Same thing with Minitel. You plug in the phone line, you get a bill at the end of the month, France Telecom uh, keeps one-third and keeps, gives two-thirds to content providers. So what it did is that content providers could get in at very low cost because they didn't have to collect money Okay, money was guaranteed, um, and it really also created a business model through micropayment. You would sell your content by the minute. Boom, done. And so that's something that dot commerce didn't have, right? There was no built-in business model with the web in 95, right? We had an experiment, and it led into a crash in 2001, right? Here, immediately, content providers were able to make money. And so network effects went in full bloom, huge positive feedback loop, uh, the amount of users went up drastically fast. The amount of uh, Minitel sites also went up drastically fast. Kevin will talk about some um, the data and more specifics, but basically there were about 25,000 services at peak. So by 1986, all of France was online. But just because you make a system and you give something for free doesn't mean it's going to become popular. So that begs the question, besides economics, how did Minitel become popular culture? We wouldn't be talking about Minitel today if it hadn't reached this kind of popular adoption, this sense that you were living with and alongside and through Minitel. Here are images produced by France Telecom circulated to promote the network. Here are the circumstances of use that they imagined for the users, the ways they suggested you using it. It's adopted by a small business owner as a point of sale. It's being used by someone at home while the children are quietly working on their homework. <laughs> it's neat. It's clean. It is enabling French families to flourish. These sorts of things aren't the kinds of things that people remember when they think about Minitel. What is memorable to people are these sorts of visually striking advertisements and the many services that were produced by independent, private individuals and organizations on the edges of the network. The number of services provided by the state are relatively few. And so when we look at these kind of charts about growth, we're seeing the result of an interplay between public and private. That the public services are there to require use, encourage folks to get over the initial hump of using an alien way of communication. But in order to stay, to justify the cost, there have to be community interests, popular culture interests, other sorts of things happening there that you would stick with. So these data here, which I'll explain in a moment, are comparative. It's comparing the relative growths 
of this network on a number of different um, statistics. So one would be how many people can get online. Another way to think about it would be how many terminals are there connected to the network. A third way would be measuring how many hours people are connected. And another way would be how many new services are being created on the system. So what you can see here is there's three of those statistics that kind of rise and then taper off by the end of the 1980s. But a third rises at a different rate, and that's the number of services, which reflects the low, low barriers that were in place for starting a new service on the network. So this is the first place we, where we see a real departure from the conventional narrative about Minitel that we have received, that it was this closed, state-controlled system. In fact, it merely was a platform for the creativity of technically inclined people throughout France who thought they had an idea for what you could do with a mass-scale information system. And the result of that is a reflection back in other forms of media and popular culture of what life is like when you have a Minitel at home or at work. So Minitel magazine discusses the uh, experience of going into chat rooms as a return to the masquerade ball. That it's a place where you go to have fun, to play with identity, to wear a mask and be somebody else. And in La Nouvelle Observateur, which is kind of like a Time magazine uh, of France, they're boasting about the year of Minitel, and it's something that only we have. It's embedded in a national identity, not just in the identities of the individual people, but in the whole country, that we can feel that we are building the future here by uh, using these little uh, Minitel boxes in our homes. Our kind of uh, interesting area that we have explored is how Minitel appears in popular television, film, and music. So here are two examples of uh, a 12-inch dance single and a music video, both for songs that are about uh, dalliances, digital dalliances, little liaisons that you might happen, affairs that occur on Minitel, which becomes a recurring motif in um, soap operas, in police procedurals, of crimes that take place because of Minitel, or marriages that fall apart, love affairs that begin. Minitel, like many media, is interwoven in the everyday kinds of interactions that people have in modern society. So uh, a question that has kind of emerged through the research is how Minitel could be different from other systems that we know from the period. So this is a, the cover of Byte magazine, a hobby computing magazine with international circulation that is discussing Minitel as something that is on the verge of arriving to all readers. That in this same year, 1983, Radio Shack, the Radio Shack catalog had a two-page spread of all Videotech equipment. The sense uh, among many Americans was that Minitel is great, but it's controlled by the French state. So ultimately, when the American market takes over our creativity and ingenuity, we'll blast this thing into the future. So we, have, we can catch all these glimpses of almost Minitel in different places. The US is one, but we see examples such as Prestel in the UK. Here is uh, an ad for CompuServe, which reached a multi uh, audiences from multiple nations. And so when we see these things, all of which are advertised very similarly to Minitel, it's like, why Minitel? Why would we have mass adoption of Minitel in France and not anywhere else? We've come up with a four-part answer for that question, and we've kind of previewed two of them to you. One is the giving away of the terminals, the creation of uh, low barriers 
for uh, the user side of the market. So you can remember these people lining up in gymnasiums to pick up their terminal equipment. The second reason would be providing a, a framework into which people could build new businesses. So not dictating the content of those businesses or the specific mechanics of those services, but how money might flow. So the kiosk gave people an, a very familiar metaphor for thinking about how commercialization of information services might work. They could see something familiar in existing media forms as a way to understand how they might fit into these new ones. Our last two ways of describing this require diving in further into the infrastructure of Minitel. So this is a very abstract diagram of how you might think about the Minitel platform. So I want you to build a mental model of how Minitel works. And at this platform, you can kind of see the two sides as we talk about it as multi-sided market. That over here, you have the users who have terminals at home or at their offices. And over here, you have the servers that are hosting these services that you might want to access. Now, in the middle is the network. And the network is what's going to handle the connections between the two. And what you see here that's quite special is that this is a hybrid network combining the pre-existing analog phone system with TransPAC, a digital packet switch network. For those of you enter into old networking protocols, it uses X25. And in between are these special purpose computers that are installed regionally throughout France that handle the negotiation between these two systems. So from the user point of view, you're at home, you're doing Minitel, you didn't install much else beyond just bringing this uh, plastic box home. But what it means for us thinking in terms of the platform is that we can see how different interests are arranged inside of this architecture. That the edges of the platform are owned and operated privately and independently, and it's only the interconnection between them that is overseen by a public institution, by a public agency. So the public platform is just connecting two sets of private actors. And another, here's another one of many, many, many of these uh, artistic renderings of Minitel that we find in the archive. What this makes possible is that this central actor is acting in the interest of the overall system. The central actor depends on revenue that they take from the rents of these fees they're, they're uh, overseeing. But their ultimate goal is to make the system useful for all the actors who are coming to it. That, that's why they provide uh, systems such as directory and search, and why they handle the billing and accounting for their services. So I'm going to kind of signal here a, a little side quest that you might go on, which is Julian has another paper that is specifically looking at one of the efforts to commercialize Minitel technology in the United States. It's called 101 Online. It was a short-lived experiment in the Bay Area to build a Minitel kind of network. It was, uh, you can see this image here of John Coat from The Well, who is using a uh, American Minitel at a rave, right? In Oakland at a warehouse. So if that's not enough to encourage you to find this paper on your own, I don't know what else I could say. The thing that kind of animated a lot of our research, though, was trying to figure out how anybody learned to make a Minitel service. So you're, ex you're kind of expecting a lot of service providers that they're going to figure out not only what people could do with the system, but how to build it, like how to actually make the hosts happen. And what we find is this really rich literature designed and published by France Telecom detailing all of the different components of the system. 
which includes not only technical standards, but also the outcomes of user research. It's giving suggestions on optimal ways to organize a system or uh, best practices for building systems, ways to make them more efficient or more user-friendly. And this extended both from the services themselves to a cottage industry of peripherals designed to plug into different points on the system. So you can see this point of sale system is made to sit on top of the standard freebie Minitel terminal. There's also a, a very interesting example where some microcomputers that shipped only with the disk, the disk and the central processing unit and used the terminal for its input and output. So you can see how having a population, all of whom already own video terminals, makes certain things possible that aren't possible in other places. So we also see stuff like home automation systems that can turn your lights on and off, things like that. And perhaps most meaningfully is lots and lots of efforts to connect this transnational technical culture of hobby computing to this mass kind of cultural phenomenon of Minitel. So this is an example of a download kit, which is promising uh, users will be able to access games and other software by connecting their PC, their Amstrad PC to their Minitel using this cable. A similar product is this uh, banking software, home banking software, that includes a serial cable so that you can synchronize your home banking. So in a way, what this is doing is it's getting over one of the major hurdles for the adoption of internet services in the United States, which was simply ownership of a modem. Most people had no intrinsic motivation to purchase a modem. In research conducted at the time, modems were far down the list past printers, joysticks, disk drives, scanners, like every other thing you can imagine before people could justify buying a modem. Well, in France, if you could use your Minitel as a modem by buying one of these kits, you just circumvent that hurdle altogether. And so we see some quirky things that happen, such as in this um, hobby computing magazine aimed at French readers, there's a recurring column of things you can do effectively hacking with Minitel. Here are some screenshots from services that were run on the peripheries of Minitel using hybrid systems of Minitel terminals, PCs, uh, using undocumented features of the terminals. For example, you could flip the modem in order to get uh, faster transmission services, things like that, that weren't included in those like brightly colored manuals published by the telephone company. So when we kind of compare Minitel to its contemporaries, we see clear distinctions that illustrate why Minitel might have reached a much broader user base than others. But when we project this into the present, as we're doing tonight, we can see something a little different that's happening, which is the same qualities that animated the culture of Minitel in the 1980s and into the 1990s are still available to us in some kind of quiet way in the present. So in our research, we also are engaging directly with the systems, trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the people building these services back then, who were working only from the available documentation and technology. And in doing so, we've been remaking some of the visual culture that accompanied Minitel that wasn't really preserved outside of incidental photographs or things that you might see in ephemera. So when we have time later, you can come on down and take a look. This. Uh, is a demonstration, a simulation, if you will, of an important event in Minitel history that I'll mention briefly, that in 1981, with the election of Mitterrand, 
he is uh, signaling a leftward turn in French politics, and the announcement occurs on television with this videotech terminal off to the side of the screen. And when it's time for the news broadcasters to say who won the presidential election in, in 1981 in France, the camera zooms in on the screen of the terminal. And then at this speed of 1200 baud, it starts drawing the face of the winner. And in pubs and living rooms all over France, people are like, who is it? Because both candidates are white men with no hair. <laughs> so it takes about half the screen before you can figure out who won the election. So, you know, we've kind of told you a lot about different elements of the platform, and we'll have some time to come down and check out this working Minitel terminal. But we hope that this work is not just something of a historical oddity to you, but that this information is useful for you in thinking through problems you're facing in your own work or in your personal life. And the way that we've been thinking about what that actually means, of what is the activity that we're suggesting, it's imagining future platforms. How do we use what we know about the past, about Minitel and the experiences of people that used it, to imagine the future differently? And uh, we've been thinking specifically about two current uh, issues, one of them being net neutrality, uh, the other one being platform uh, governance. When it comes to net neutrality, uh, which is a very hot topic since, as you know, uh, the FCC in 2015 enshrined net neutrality into law, but the new current chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, is trying to uh, recall those regulations. Um, when we think about net neutrality, we need to think beyond binaries, and we need to go beyond this kind of Minitel is bad, the private sector is great, and government should leave the private sector alone because that's the only way people can innovate, right? Which is the rhetoric that Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, etc. have been uh, promoting, right? Uh, the problem with, with uh, thinking this way is that it leads to thinking of these lines that uh, Ted Cruz put together. They said, neutrality is a banner here for the internet. The internet should not operate at the speed of government. Right? Well, the thing with net neutrality is that it doesn't make the internet operate at the speed of government because it's not a micromanagement of the internet. All, right? all it says is, hey, Comcast, you can't discriminate against certain content that your user who's paid for your facility has chosen to try and access. Right? That's all net neutrality does. So, you know, the Minitel model really invites us to kind of find a right balance as we define public policies to foster innovation between government intervention and non-government intervention. Right? And what we see with this model is that more state, doesn't, more state involvement doesn't necessarily mean more control over private innovation. In the case of Minitel, in fact, the state involvement created a platform that then people appropriated, users and content providers, and catalyzed innovation. But for state intervention, there would not have been this fantastic ecosystem of online services which existed in France and not in the United States at the time. At the same time, less state doesn't necessarily mean less control over private innovation. CompuServe and AOL were completely closed censored platforms uh, in the 80s in the US. There was much less innovation over them even though uh, the network were left completely in the private sector. In current times, we've seen that if 
controlling innovation and restricting innovation benefits the private sector that's in charge of the network, they will restrict innovation. And this is exactly what happened when Comcast started throttling Netflix. Okay, and so again, in 2015, um, the uh, FCC declared that ISP are common carriers. And basically that targeted state intervention, I will argue, is a regulation that frees. It frees you, uh, it gives you more free, it gives the user more freedom to access content that they want, right? It's in a way, it's an anti-discrimination act for the internet. It tells the ISPs that are trying to shift the power from the edges of the network where innovation resides to the center of the network, which they control through the pipes. Uh, it tells them that they cannot restrict innovation, right? So a regulation like net neutrality, a targeted state intervention, really forces power back to the edges of the internet and supports innovation, right? Just like in the middle case, we've seen that a targeted state intervention really supported um, innovation. So really, Minitel gives us a good amount of data to kind of debunk the myth of the internet must not be regulated, otherwise it will run uh, at the speeds of government. And so the other uh, current topic that we think Minitel is really relevant for is the, governments, uh, the governance of platforms. Right, so we thought about the terms that kind of move between platform administration and the operation of states. And we can see how these are ways that we might discuss what's happening when you're running a platform. And a comparison that was unavoidable when we were analyzing this historical materials was between Apple's platform and Minitel. The, the resemblances are actually very striking in terms of how Apple appears to the developers of apps. So if you're an Apple user, you may not have had the experience of going to the developer forums or trying to create an app. If you go to the, uh, in, become a registered Apple developer, there are many hurdles in your way before you can have your app appear in the App Store. And likewise, the construction of your app is constrained in certain clear ways, like your choice of programming languages, some of your access to the underlying computational platform. And then once the app appears on the App Store, there's no guarantee that it will stay there. So in that case, Apple is acting very much like the state administrators who controlled access to the Minitel platform, that Apple is a kind of a censor in this case. The difference that is so stark in between these two cases is that Minitel was required to operate in the public interest. And so the extent to which censorship was carried out by Minitel was a matter of public concern. Conflicts that emerged between users and service providers would be litigated in the courts. They would become matters of public record. There is no sing similar opportunity for redress for a person who has a conflict with the Apple platform. And we see these conflicts emerge over and over, taking similar shape about what services are allowed to persist on these platforms for what reasons. And what occurs is that even when remedies are found that are satisfying in the short term, they are arbitrary and they are singular and they're rarely documented in a way that makes it possible to build towards a kind of reliability. 
So the transparency, the accountability, and the sovereignty that exist in these two systems are quite different from one another. The things that we generally call platforms are privately run infrastructures that nevertheless support our public lives. And when we look at Minitel, for all of its limitations and its uh, things that we may not be happy about, the public interest remained central to the platform for its entire life. It remained a publicly run infrastructure that's goal was to encourage, support, and maintain a type of private innovation. So another way to flip that comparison is to think about the role of public values in the decisions made by these different platform administrators. To what extent must they place consideration on the public's values? Do they have to consult with the public? Do they have to refer to foundational texts that articulate your values like a constitution. And we find that this problem, this central question about public values in the governance of platforms is one that is inherent in the construction of mass scale social computing systems. All the way back at Nora and Mink's report, the one that stimulated the French government to fund Minitel in the first place, they say, care must be taken to prevent this emerging industry from dominating business and the citizenry. So with that kind of encouraging thought, we would like to move into Q&A. And so please, if you have projects that are relevant to these sorts of questions, we're happy to also use this time to think through how the Minitel case might be useful to you. So thank you very much for your time and attention. Economical impact, the finances of, of, of that, uh, um, you know, when yeah. I was there. But yeah. Those things started, and I, I am very yeah. curious about yeah. it's, how it turned out. It's a great question, uh, and it's a very controversial question. Um, France Telecom has. Uh, claims that it was uh, amortized very quickly and started making a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, they were done through independent uh, reports that were put out by those big audit company, the same that audited you know, Enron and the lack of that, so independent ones, right? Um, some people claim, uh, mostly critics, uh, that uh, you know, it was a huge waste of money, but they, they don't really provide any data for that. Uh, the problem is that it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to do uh, a good analysis of this because how do you measure the impact of this, right? Do you measure it in terms of, okay, how much did it cost to digitize uh, Transpac, the underlying network, versus how much revenue did France Telecom get, right? That could be one way to look at it. But then you got to take into uh, impact how much did it cost for the government to buy those terminals and give them, okay, which is a cost, but then it created jobs, right? How, not, how do you measure the benefit of having a country that's ahead of every other country by 15 years in terms of cyberspace, right? So it's, even at the micro level, there's no serious data. Uh, one of the reasons too was that it's very clear uh, that France Telecom was cooking the books in a lot of ways, uh, even when you look at uh, kind of the, the proportion of what revenue comes from 
this type of service and that type of service. One year they said the chat rooms are 80% of the revenue, and then the next year chat rooms become kind of scandalous, so they disappear from the rankings, right? So in the book, we didn't even rank the services because we said we can't. We've looked at all these numbers and they make absolutely no sense. Uh, and we have reasons to think that the books were cooked. So I can't answer your question. I, I doubt anyone. I, I would even say that if anyone is definitive about an answer, they probably don't know what they're talking about. Would be. Right. Because you talk about transparency, just, I'm just curious about whether they Yeah, there was no transparency when it came to the books. <laughs> yeah. I suppose a cultural complement to that is the role of like mythological figures of service providers who got rich and then yes. uh, remain like heads of industry or angel investors and things like that. In the same way that there are certain figures who linger on in the American internet imagination, there are certain post-Minitel celebrities of a kind who are like wealthy playboys and things like that. And there's a similar story of like dropping out of college to build this dorm room 3615 adult service or something like that. Yeah. So there's a way that the stories people tell about Minitel reflect certain beliefs in its financial success, whether or not that was generally experienced yeah. is harder to say. And check out the Computer History Museum uh, website because we've interviewed both service providers and France Telecom people, so it's the contrast Between them. is kind of interesting. Over there. What happened after Minitel in France? Like, what was the next kind of big um, platform? Yeah, um, so in... Was there something like in between? So in 95, the web gets, uh, I mean, the internet gets privatized. And uh, if you look at the, uh, the graphs that we had that Kevin is pulling out of uh, the speed at which it grew, uh, it collapsed at pretty much the same thing. So you're looking at a kind of a standard distribution yeah, so curve. So this is 1995. Yeah. So the peak is 97, but it kind of tops between 95 and 97. It then collapses as the internet goes up. It's um, e-commerce. What's that? It's e-commerce that, that takes off. It's e-commerce on the web that takes off. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what... Yes, absolutely. And then uh, in 2012, the service gets shut down. There were still about 300,000 active users, uh, in particular because those machines, as you've seen when we booted it, it boots like this, it never breaks. This computer was made in 1983, okay? I travel all, and Canon also travel all around the country with this. They get banged up in airplanes, right? They're, they're still very sturdy. And so um, there were a proportion of population that was not on computers, right? Uh, older folks who used it for the white pages. Uh, also farmers, the entire swine trade in France was organized on Minitel. And it makes sense. You're gonna have this in your farm, it's not gonna break when a pig runs into it and it falls on the ground, right? Um, and that was a recurrent, when the system shut down in 2012, it was like a, a type of human interest story that lots of newspapers ran, was finding some like rural person who had a Minitel on the back of their pickup and take a picture of them. Yeah. Because there were still tens of thousands of connection hours in the last month of its operation. Yeah. And but what's really interesting is that it still lives on, not through the official Transpac network, but through the phone network. Yeah. And there's been, a re since 2012, we've seen a recurring interest in it. If you type the hashtag Minitel on Twitter, you will see it's, there's a growing interest. There's a number of hobbyists 
who are rebuilding their old Minitel servers from back in the desk and putting them live online. Uh, and so there, it still exists in kind of a, a parallel universe, I would say. Yeah, it's actually an interesting analytic question packaged inside of your question, which is, why would we think of the internet and Minitel as distinct? And they are distinct in certain ways, like for sure infrastructurally in terms of their protocols they use, interconnection opportunities. But if we were to think more broadly about going online or the net or this mode of being in the world and among media, then we see a lot of continuity. And in fact, there were many homes by the mid early 1990s that had PCs with modems and Minitel and Minitel services could be emulated on the desktop PC. So there is an interesting kind of overlap that exists between these two phenomena that resists that kind of progress narrative of like moving from one platform to the next sequentially. Yeah, it's a fantastic talk. So I just want to see how far you want to push the argument. Yeah, um, push it. Because um, <laughs> you could be making a more modest claim that there are different ways of configuring infrastructures of connection. Here's an interesting difference. That's, that's fantastic to do that. Perfect. But towards the end, you are making a much stronger claim mm -hmm. that there is a possibly necessary, maybe indispensable, irreducible role for public investment in sustaining possibilities of private interconnection, which has enormous implications because it could it's a key way of rethinking how we're going to rescue the press. For example, which is no longer getting private subsidy, it may need public subsidy. It's a very important political economy argument. But obviously, it runs up against arguments where Minitel failed in the end, it couldn't scale, etc., etc. So, do you want to push it that far? And if you do, how will you deal with the obvious sort of standard criticisms to get past them? So, just so we're clear, I wasn't talking about subsidies, right? I wasn't suggesting that. No, I know, that. but that's the way I'm reading into yeah. what you were saying. It's investment, it's public investment in the infrastructure. Well, I would say that from a more broad standpoint, it's targeted state intervention. That targeted intervention doesn't necessarily mean investment, right? It doesn't mean, I'm not suggesting, for example, that the United States government take over the pipes or the backbones. What I'm saying is that targeted state intervention can take a whole lot of forms. Sure. It could be investment, it could be regulation. Yeah. Right? Um, the problem is when you see in the rhetoric that is put forth by Comcast and Verizon and these lobbyists is that, um, you know, they, they're kind of taking a, a meta-theoretical thing saying, oh, state is bad. Look at Minitel. It died. Right? But they're not saying state is bad as in state subsidies. They're saying state regulation is bad. Right? Mm -hmm. So we're we reversing. What's that? Did those service cost money? Oh, yeah. I mean, in this case, it was investment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think we could say one more thing to this point, which is that one of the important components of the Minitel story is the definition at the outset of what success might look like, which is to say we have this report from Nora and Mink, this, this uh, elaboration of the notion of telematics, that a telematic future looks like this, and so they can build towards that vision. In the cases of many other kinds of systems that we occupy, they don't have that same type of vision. And it's certainly not a public-minded vision in that, that kind of way. So again, it's like we wouldn't imagine this future as replacing existing systems or necessarily transforming them. 
but that if we want systems that achieve these kinds of public values, then they will have to be a public interest built into the infrastructure and administration of the system. Patricia, you were waiting. I just, I just wanted to say that my recollection is that paying for the service was not cheap. No, it was not. They gave you the phone yeah. the same way the the same way AT and T used to give you the phone. Mm -hmm. But the service was expensive. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, Very. certainly at the beginning. So everybody was not on it to play games and spend hours on it. Right. At the beginning, it was really like the phone book was made much easier because it was available online. Yes. Um, I, so I don't, I don't know what you make of the, the cost of it for citizens. Yeah. I mean, it still became popular, and I think it has to do more with the cultural trust of what the telephone and telegraph company, the, the French government, but uh, there was an, a certain amount of trust in them because they did a lot of things besides the post, the mail, right? They were the centralized communication system in France, period, whether it was the telephone or the mail. Sure. So I'm missing trust, balancing out something about the expense, something like that, at least at the beginning. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I mean, the circumstances of use are maybe more complex than we've been able to portray here in the sense that we kind of refer we back to this notion of like the person sitting at home accessing the Minitel from their residence. Whereas a lot of the connection hours came from people at work who were supposed to be doing work, but were actually chatting with other people online. Yes. So there was a lot of, we can say with some confidence that many people who have memories of using Minitel don't have, also have memories of getting 100 franc phone bills and things like that coming down the line because someone else was paying the bill. Yeah. Although there is like another recurring part of the Minitel mythology is about like children in the house accessing this very easy to use box <laughs> that you don't have to swipe your card or type in a password to start spending money on who are offline all day after school and then they have a big surprise at the end. A not unfamiliar surprise. <laughs> at the beginning it wasn't for kids. No, but no, the machine is at home. It's there. Yeah. It took five or ten years for the kids to move it. Uh, I was on there immediately. No. <laughs> but not for long because then we got the phone bill. <laughs> um, but I'm using on, on the notion of, of trust, and Kevin was mentioning that people were, were using it at work for non-work related purposes. Uh, they were, it was easy because when you're the boss and you're from far away and you see just text, you don't really know what the text is, right? So it could be work stuff. And then one day the, uh, the PTT, and, you know, their engineers, brilliant, they're trying to make things more efficient. They realize we can actually put like a cookie-like thing in it. So that when you turn off the Minitel and you turn it back on, it will bring you back to the last page you visited, right? So before that, people were at work, the boss comes, you just turn off the Minitel, oh, you're done, you turn it back on, clean sleep. But now the boss can go in and say, oh, what are you doing? And click and boom, the chat room is there. So people in, in a rage brought back thousands of Minitels to the post office. Yeah. And so that cookie feature got very quickly killed. Yeah. Uh, Did they call it like the snitch in your box or something like that? Yeah, and, yeah. and going back to transparency, France Telecom denied for, and still the people whom I interviewed from France Telecom denied that uh, sex chat at work was ever a problem. 
but the same people just rolled out that feature within you know weeks. So and there um, were feature articles in magazines like Minitel about using it covertly at work. So it was a somewhat widespread phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of questions. Yeah. Um, in the back. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, you, you you mentioned like children being online, and I was wondering if you could elaborate more about like at least the story of the American internet and American cyberspace is very much about like there's this huge component of like moral panics, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, like oh, people are going online, and it's going to make them less social or like more antisocial. Or and even now we're talking about like what like does Facebook make us depressed? Does Instagram like? have an effect on our mental health, and do they therefore have responsibilities to handle that? Um, uh, and, and there's this undercurrent of like the internet being a source of danger, and, like yeah. a, a place where predators can yeah. Like, yeah. You know, take your children from your home. Um, so I was wondering if like there's that kind of story in Minitel as well, and if you could talk a little bit about that. There, there was, but I would say not nearly to the same extent. Uh, first of all, the whole Puritan sex thing is not the same in France, uh, <laughs> as evidenced by the uh, ads that you see all over the streets. Uh, there was an interesting in the book we uh, we have a translation of uh, an interview of the minister of um, social affairs in France. So not only is he a minister of government but of social affairs, being interviewed by a nudie magazine. Okay, and uh, they're they're asking him if um, Minitel should be banned, and he and he responds, um, so should we also ban the telephone, right? <laughs> and you're talking about the minister of government saying that, right? So the sex thing wasn't progression of a problem. There was the right wing uh, groups were kind of you know crying wolf, saying that all children would become homosexuals. Uh, basically by going online because of those things and so there was a little the guest sites were targeted real hard uh, by the right wing there were a few you know drama story of people you know killing people whom they met a minute but it was a very it, I think it was much more tame than uh, what happened when the internet uh, showed up and I don't think there was a moral panic when it came to oh is it making us depressed in, in fact I think, can you roll back one slide? Uh, the whole masquerade thing, I think people found that it was a really cool way to kind of be creative and, and play a masquerade and that it was a fun, creative moment. Uh, a lot of people started meeting in real life. Uh, there were stories of love and marriages. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a little bit of talk, but not to the extent to which uh, we saw in 95, uh, starting in 95. Yeah, like this uh, Maggie Paul Bell, her hook of her song is, translates into like, Minitel is just a mini sin, which seemed to be like a prevailing belief among a lot of users. Like this is just some place you can go lost. You, you can know. listen to that song on our website, by the way, that uh, <laughs> they mentioned Minitel.us. We have about 200 artifacts, uh, including MP3s of, um, of these real, tunes. real cool, fun songs. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Follow up to the moral panics uh, on technological resistance, local narratives of oh, we're being made to use this thing. It's so yeah. reasonable. Is was there any of that? Yeah, this wasn't a central part of 
our project and you know I can't I don't want to say too much about it we could assume but um, you may be surprised to see how widespread the adoption was um, across formal political organizations so many most political parties created uh, services quite quickly but in terms of local regional pockets of resistance we didn't find it in the documents that we looked at but that would be a really good follow-up project to this one yeah just following up on the state intervention um, stuff um, could you possibly disambiguate a little bit you know what are the lessons of Minitel's many forms of strategy intervention that were specific to circumstances and the kinds of lessons that uh, we might actually take on for for the internet today I mean you end the book by calling for strategic government uh, intervention. Um, but of course, when we think about that, one of the things we think of now is, of course, the kinds of uh, national enclaves of platforms that countries like Russia and China in particular are trying to create. And they're inspired by a lot of the same motivations that the French were with Minitel. Um, so to what extent is all these subsidies and all this kind of public service governance, to what extent is, are the things Minitel did specific to a nationally bounded system with a lot of money to throw at it? And what are the kind of lessons that really can travel outside the confines of that kind of project? Yeah, well, one component of the way that we've been using Minitel to think about contemporary problems is not that we would reproduce Minitel, because as you point out, it's quite unique, the situation that they found themselves in, both in terms of how poor the existing telecoms infrastructure is, and then what resources were available to address that, and the absence of contemporary systems to use as points of reference. Um, so from that point of view, that's one important piece of it. The thing that I have found that the Minitel case does for me is it calls attention to places where there are forms, existing forms of state intervention that might look like subsidy that aren't generally included in the conversation about them. So for American telecoms, that would be like the generous public subsidies that already exist or that enabled the creation of the networks in the first place, right of way and other sorts of access to geographic space or ongoing uh, subsidies in the forms of balancing rural and urban users and things like that. And to make public subsidy uh, part of the conversation is step one. Step two would be thinking about infrastructures as having some, uh, some uh, public interest impact. That if we have certain values, then the arrangement of those infrastructures will reflect, reflect them. I hadn't really thought through it in these other cases that you're bringing up. But it may be the case that you could submit those to a similar analysis and find that, yes, they do uh, reflect the priorities and values of the administrative bodies that are authorizing the expenditures, creating those sorts of nationally bound systems. But they may run into conflict with values that we hold about other sorts of systems. That enabling of identifying that conflict would be a useful outcome that isn't really possible if we're working only with one existing example and then everything else must be imagined from new from whole cloth. Thank you. Yeah. I wonder if you guys can talk a little bit more about sort of the aspects of maintaining and updating the system. Because it was around for so long, yeah. clearly there was stuff 
that must have changed and both sort of like what were some of those big changes but also maybe sort of the literacy components of that and how the state or other actors handled a variety of people suddenly having to learn new pieces of it. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a thought about this. Do you want me to? Well, I think one answer, and maybe Kevin will have a different answer, and there's, I think, many pieces to that, but one answer is that it did not really get updated. <laughs> yeah, um, that's sort of the answer. And that's, <laughs> and that's why it died. Uh, and one of the things that made it great was the fact that the state came up with the specifications and said, here's a thing that works, you know, create something that you can do whatever you want in terms of content, but it has to specify to this specification, and this is the terminal you're, you're gonna get, right? That was great in 1983. The problem by, you know, 2000, if you go to the post office and you get this, but, uh, okay. <laughs> and, you know, we talk, so they tried to improve the, the PTT, which became France Telecom, try to improve things. So they created Minitels that had chip card readers uh, so that you can make payment with your credit card without sending all the information. Uh, they had JPEG uh, capable Minitel where you, had, you could have colored pictures. Of course, at 1200 bucks, it's not super useful. Um, you had uh, Minitels that were faster. I think they wanted 5600. But by and large, you know, to change a whole thing like this requires, you know, top-down planning, right? So what made it such a catalyst to private innovation at some point became, it, it was frozen in time. And the state is such a behemoth that to move it is, is kind of tough, right? And so it couldn't evolve with the times at that time, you know, around 92, 93, PC penetration in France starts going up, uh, PC prices start declining. And so it's, you see the end of a cycle. And we like to see it not as a failure, as, you know, kind of the US mythology would be ahead, but more as the end of a cycle. But it was a very long cycle, uh, but it was frozen in time. Uh, and so ironically, at some point, that state intervention does become him. Um, so that's my part of the answer. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, just that if we think about the two interfaces to the platform as being the user terminals on one side and then the servers on the other side, that while the state pretty tightly controlled the user terminals, that established a stable and uniform target for the development of services, they gave very free reign to the development of the server side. And this is kind of an interesting component of the story because there was the vision that we were gonna stimulate this domestic computer industry, but uh, service providers weren't required to use French hardware for building their, ho their host systems. And as a result of uh, technical cultural preferences on the part of university trained computer scientists, almost all of them coming out of university wanted to use Unix. And the predominant mini computers produced in France didn't run the Unix operating system. So many, many, perhaps, although we can't really say for sure, most systems, many of the big name systems were run on computers produced by IBM, AT&T, Digital, uh, and other multinationals that already had machines on the market running Unix. Yeah. And, and 
the great irony of this is I went in December to the archives of the French Communist Party and I wanted to see, because they just opened them up, and I wanted to see what they used for their service. Well, I found out that they were running the French, the Minotaur French Communist Party service on an IBM computer. <laughs> I poked a joke at them about it that they didn't think was very funny. <laughs> but that was kind of, I think it, it tells it all, right? Yeah. And it's kind of neat from a, a platform's perspective because it meant that the network treated host machines as black boxes. As long as the input and output conform to the published standard, you could have a human being writing the packets that are coming out of the system. So they really, um, so there was a lot of progression and upgrading and things happening on the sides of the services, but the thing that the users actually touch stayed relatively constant over time. So we'll let's we'll do it. Cool, Dylan. Um, thank you guys. That's really great. I'm wondering. Um, thinking about your project as a prompt to think about contemporary concerns. Um, one binary that we talk about a lot in sort of um, present day networks is uh, uh, the balance between security and surveillance. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if there's um, anything from the Minitel story that speaks to that conflict. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I guess I, you can start. There were, so there was no surveillance over Minitel. Uh, you read a lot of vaguely academic papers that said that it was completely, that everyone was being checked on by the state. That's not true. Um, Minitel was anonymized uh, on both ends, um, meaning that, first of all, when you would get your bill from the post office, it would say Minitel service X minutes, X amount of minutes, it wouldn't say what site you visited. Uh, I think the reason was that France Telecom didn't want people in a household, you know, uh, partners or a husband and wife to know what the other person was doing on Minitel, um, and, or a boss, you know, so you just saw X amount of minutes. And the uh, service providers did not see the identity of the final user. So that was completely anonymized at that level too. And so they weren't able to uh, monetize personal data like platforms um, that we see today have built their business model around data mining. Uh, that did not exist uh, at the time of, of Minitel. So it was very, very private. Uh, there was no surveillance. There were monitors in chat rooms that were monitoring 24-7. Uh, in the chat rooms, they were also posing as users. Uh, so the picture that you saw of um, the college students on, um, on his bed chatting is a real person. Uh, his name was Coca, and uh, Coca actually worked for SM. Uh, and Coca was both uh, enticing users into uh, sexy chatting, and at the same time, he was monitoring to make sure there was no solicitation by prostitute or things that would have been illegal. But uh, but the records were not uh, were not kept of uh, the chat that were going on, and that's why it's kind of very difficult to do any sort of content analysis of what was going on in those chat rooms because there are no records of them. Um, yeah, but as I mean, far as the yeah. advertising business model did not work. Yep. And we talked to people who attempted to sell ads on their services, and it failed. But in both the case of state surveillance and corporate surveillance, 
which are kind of the twin threats that we experience on social media systems today. Uh, it's not the beneficiaries of French society that prevented those models from taking hold so much as they would have been very difficult technically given the state of the technology at the time to implement. So, uh, you know, we see hands-on kinds of uh, implementation of censorship policy and from maybe a analytic point of view, it reveals the distance between the explicit policy as written and then as implemented. So we also found lots of examples of corruption, back scratching, line cutting, like ways of kind of greasing the wheels of state bureaucracy in order to circumvent different rules and things like that. Yeah. I, I, I would like to say that actually at the time, yeah. Uh, the confidentiality legislations uh, were, were existed and they were That's true. kind of fairly strong, much stronger than they are here now. And I think that some of that actually prevented some of those things from the surveillance yeah. and, and the tracking. They are less than by business reasons. I think they were by law. They were not, a lot of that they were not allowed to do. Yes, so they're still very strong, hence the uh, right to be forgotten regulations that the European governments have been imposing on Google. That is what I mean. It's that in, in, in the, you know, in the those days they already exist. Yes. And, and they, 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 they would kind of prevent some Absolutely. of from yeah. happening. Yeah. 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 Concentration on like the content provider side because the net neutrality comparison, I, I, I like it, but like in, in the lobbying in DC, it often comes down to like fights between enormous monopolies over pipe and like mm -hmm. enormous monopolies over content. Mm -hmm. like, you know, Google and Netflix fighting in Comcast and AT&T. Mm -hmm. So was there any dominance like a Google or Netflix on the content provider side? Was like everyone was like I know there's an enormous amount of sites, but was everyone just visiting like Le Mans or something like that, or was it pretty flat and like, you know? I think it was pretty concentrated when it comes to the, uh, the chat rooms. Um, it's of course impossible to tell for sure because Transicon didn't report data on what sites were being visited for how long. And the only reports that we see in those mental magazines were self-reported by content providers and the numbers were inflated. Um, and so the data, and that's why we didn't include that data in the book because it's not. Uh, and, the, and the magazine stopped reporting it after a while. They, they titled, uh, okay, you guys are a bunch of cheaters. We're going to start reporting it. But it seems that they were, yeah, the, the chat rooms were, uh, the, the big newspaper chat rooms uh, were very popular, I think in part because it was an advertising war, right? So. Um, the companies that could put the most ads were the ones getting in the, the attention and the, those big newspaper conglomerates made a ton a ton of money and so you had this big big ones and then you had you know thousands of independent little groups putting <coughs> together their you know hobby you know whatever um i'm gonna go try and find mushrooms uh this weekend do you want to meet me or whatever uh, so teeny little things right yeah, and I, I suppose one thing we could clarify about the prevalence of newspaper-driven sites had to do with the, the metaphor that was kind of threaded through all of the public policy, which is 
thinking about these sites or services as publishers and comparing them to publishers of newspapers. And in order to get the um, familiar short codes, the memorable short codes like 3615 MEC, you would have to be registered as a publisher with the state censors. So, and there's a whole lot of interesting yeah, interplay that occurs around that, but that metaphor then drives how lots of people in government would think about what was yeah. happening on the system, that it was about like readers coming to access content, even though the content was chat with other readers. And it's very interesting I mentioned lobbies, content provider lobbies, because the newspaper lobbies almost killed the project. Oh. They saw that Minitel was gonna kill them. Uh, I mean, they were pretty, you know, they had some good foresight there. Uh, so they tried to kill it, and when they realized they couldn't kill it, they tried to make it so that only newspaper publishers could have access to it. And then won that battle, so the law passed that only newspaper producers could publish on there. Of course, that thing got bypassed pretty quickly because it's really easy to just publish it, at, uh, you know, Xerox a one-pager and say you're a newspaper publisher, which is essentially what people did. Uh, but the kiosk was called kiosk in part to appease the press lobby. So you, you did see this kind of lobby thing. There also was a, a weird side industry that could only exist in this situation, which was people who created newspapers and solicited subscribers to sell that business to a would-be Minitel service provider who had no intention of doing anything with that. And those were often like satirical newspapers, somewhere on the order of like a high school newsletter, uh, published very infrequently. Like, and uh, yeah, so there's these quirky things that come up in order to enable circumvention of these policies. Yeah, it's a really cool story too, because to be a real, an official newspaper and being able to publish here, you had to have X amount of subscribers. And so you, as a content provider, you pay, I think, let's say the equivalent of $1,000 per year, and you would buy your newspaper, turnkey thing. A newspaper, it came with the readers, it came with the subscribers, it came with the content. Yeah, we pay $1,000, you get your newspaper, ching ching, and you're, and you're home. <laughs> I think maybe just one more. Yeah. Two. Did any other countries um, try to implement it? I mean, did it start yeah. maybe nearly spreading? Yeah. Yeah. A million of them. Yeah. Um, so there's some really great research emerging around this because the technology that underlies Minitel is video tech, which is something that illuminate or like inspired interactive TV sorts of thinking and. Many other countries, specifically in Europe, had publicly funded uh, video tech networks of different kinds. None that have the quite the characteristics here. So, for example, Prestel in the UK is very similar to Minitel in many, in many ways. But the key difference is that the state not only owned and operated the infrastructure connecting users and services, but they also maintained the host servers. So, if you wanted to create a service, you had to rent space on a server that was operated by a state uh, administrator. So that really limited this like lateral growth. Yeah. And that to update the content, you'd have to go see the British post office and the, here's a floppy, can you update my daily newspaper, please? So. Yeah, uh, so but like the book Teletext in Europe, it kind of gives you a nice view of how states might think of information services differently in this same period. And certainly they're all looking at uh, Minitel.
I think we had the last question. So, yeah. yeah. So if you didn't have any of there were public terminals as well? And it, what's that? Yes. Public, okay. Absolutely. Uh, so and in fact, there were only 7 million terminals in existence. The country had about 55 million people. So if you think about a four-people household, uh, that means uh, 28 million people had it at home, 30 million didn't, but they, it was a choice because the terminal was free. But you had uh, public access points at post offices, uh, in the streets, just like a phone booth, but it was a Minitel booth, uh, and at work. Right? So you didn't need to have it at home to be able to access it. In fact, it was probably better to do it from work because unless you were the owner of the company, well, it was free. <laughs> no, no, I was asking because I was just wondering in terms of like how to log on, what about undocumented out-of-status populations, like if they needed to interact or, or like, sure. you know. So from like, home, you needed... Was there like an, or were there underground cultures of people, yeah. you know? Like, it's a, what I understand the system is that you sort of need to be like legalized by the government to have... Well, so from home, you needed a phone line, so you had to be documented enough to have a phone line, but you could just go to the post office and, you know, put quarters just like you would in a phone booth. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and also these images that you see here are from servers that are running outside of the state apparatus. Mm -hmm. So they don't benefit from any of the things like the searchable directory or the billing system. There's no business model around them, but they are completely outside of state surveillance running on. Functions like in the same way, like you see, like subcultures and communities wanting to create things and finding. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, this one sums it up. This one is called LA Census. Ellis, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we found evidence of these, like, um, in pirated games, there would be, like, contact information. So, um, mainly, it's, like, within the flows of a predominantly teen microcomputer hobby, um, something that people did for their own personal enrichment. Right, well, okay, All right, thank cool. You thank much. you so much. Um,